Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So we're back, but as what? That was the headline uh, on the cover of Der Spiegel uh, on Sunday's editions. We're asking a version of the same question on today's show. Germany is having a liminal moment. They won the World Cup. They may be the only winner in the Euro crisis. There's a slow thawing in the decades-long German freeze-out of nationalism and patriotism, a sentiment so strong that even in the 90s, school flagpoles did not fly the national flag and children didn't learn the national anthem. Hitler's Mein Kampf, essentially a banned book in Germany since the period of denazification, will soon be republished. And the remaining Germans who remember the war and Jews who lived through the Holocaust are slowly dying off. So today we want to explore two questions. Has Germany turned a corner toward a greater comfort level with national pride? And if so, how comfortable is the rest of the world with that? Let me tell you who's here. Um, well, here in studio, Rand Cooper is a, an author, essayist, and freelance writer, former resident of Germany for six years, right? All right. And um, the joining us by, well, I'll introduce the other two guests uh, who we have on in just a second. Um, but uh, right now joining us by phone is uh, Catherine Stupp. She is a freelance journalist uh, in Berlin, Germany, and uh, she's with us right now. Hi, Catherine. Hi. It's good uh, to be here. Well, it's good to have you here, too. And, and I'm going to have you sort of get us started here. Um, since, since you're there r- right now, uh, last year you wrote about how Germans addressed the issues of self-celebration following a women's soccer victory. What's it like this time? Uh, is there still a kind of muted quality that we wouldn't have seen in Italy in 2006 or Spain in, in 2010, where people stay up all night going nuts and don't, don't go to work the, the next morning? How are Germans celebrating this particular triumph? I wouldn't say that there's anything muted about this celebration. I'd say that there has been a sense of euphoria in Berlin, at least, and I think across the country since Germany had this 7-1 to win against Brazil last week. Um, I think since then, people have really started getting confident and thinking, oh, we're going to win the World Cup. We can't believe this. And so, I mean, in Berlin, the last, all, really throughout the World Cup, but especially the, the finale was... The final was kind of the icing on the cake with hundreds of thousands of fans in Berlin coming to Berlin from other parts of Germany and going to the Brandenburg Gate to watch the game in front of huge, uh, in front of the gate on huge uh, screen TVs. And just today, uh, the team flew from Brazil to Berlin and they came on double-decker buses through the city with, I think, about 400,000 fans greeting them along the way. And then they also went onto a stage in front of Brandenburg Gate and greeted the fans and had this big reception there. So uh, I wasn't there myself, but I did see some of it live on TV. And uh, the mood is absolutely euphoric right now. And, and is there at all, I mean, I don't know, I'm, I've just been reading reporting from, from around Germany. Uh, and, and, you know, anecdotally, you still do read about people. I know the Washington Post interviewed Sylvia Griffin, who's 66, and watched her the match with her husband in a suburb of Berlin. Uh, and uh, she, uh, she's a diehard soccer fan, but she remained silent during the German national anthem, un, even 
uh, unable even now to sing the words, the Post reported. We thought national pride was something to avoid at all costs, Griffin said. Patriotism, the way the Americans live it, always smacked of nationalism to my generation, and nationalism had driven this country into two wars and worse. Of course, she's 66 years old. But I, I read other interviews with people around the country saying, well, you know, we still don't really know how to do this flag-waving thing quite the same way other countries do. But it sounds like what you're describing here is, is maybe a, a Germany that, that is getting a little better at that. Well, I'm happy you bring up this woman who says that she can't sing the national anthem because, I mean, when I see seas of people watching the game and greeting the, the team and waving German flags, I do think, you know, this is German pride and they're, this is kind of new from the past few years. But at the same time, I know that there are a lot of people, a lot of Germans who think that this is problematic, who, who would never wave a German flag and who don't sing the national anthem. And, you know, a lot of these people, there are, this is kind of a marginal group, but there are people who boycott the World Cup because they think nationalism is per se a bad thing. There are people um, who are huge diehard soccer fans and who are happy that the German team won, but who still don't wave flags and uh, sing the national anthem because they say that that's just not what they do. Rand, there's a word that you uh, want us to, le- w- to learn, which I can't even begin to try to pronounce. It begins with a V. Uh, I'll let you, first of all, introduce us to the word and then to the idea. The word is Vergangenheitsbewältigung. And one of the great virtues of the German language is that it allows you to create these massive compound nouns by linking concepts together. So Vergangenheit, die Vergangenheit is the past, and Bewältigung is, uh, I, I guess you would translate that to sort of coming to terms with or, or, or grappling with or, or even mastering. So I believe, and I'm sure some of the other guests, perhaps Catherine or, or Jürgen Mateus can shed some light on this, that after World War II, this phrase was conceived in, in order to um, outline various ways in which Germans both collectively and individually could could sort of carry the very particular burden of their of their recent history, Vergangenheitsbewältigung. How will we come to terms with the past? And just sort of as an undergirding concept, you know, that obviously relates to these manifestations that we're talking about, like patriotism and, and how you negotiate that. Well, uh, since you mentioned him, uh, Jürgen Mateus is here. He's the director of Applied Research Scholars in at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies. Uh, that's a title that you almost That sounds like one of those German German. That's words. right. You can't say it all in one breath. Indeed. Um, <laughs> so, um, Jürgen Mateus, maybe the place to begin before we maybe we probe a little bit more at, at this concept that Rand has introduced, I think for a lot of people in the United States, the notion that Catherine and Rand have both just expressed, that Germans are at all uncomfortable with nationalism, with national pride, with any kind of expression of superiority, it is a pretty foreign idea. I mean, I guess, that's, I guess it would naturally be a foreign idea, but, but an idea that, that, that maybe the average American isn't aware of. I think maybe the average American hasn't really adjusted his or her idea of German character very much since, since World War II. Um, can you talk a little bit more about this? I mean, uh, how real a thing is this to you, the notion of the modern 2014 Germans still grappling with the past? Sure. First, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, well, I must say I belong probably to that that generation, uh, generational slice that you quoted um, earlier, which is rather skeptical about these, these new developments. 
I think uh, if you compare the American attitude towards displaying or waving the flag uh, to the German, you find in America a much greater degree of, of uh, positive attitude, if not naivete. And I think that's definitely, this na naivete is definitely uh, missing uh, in Germany to a large degree, at least among those who are somewhat uh, conscious of German history. Uh, and that, of course, is a significant part of the population, which is a good thing. Uh, there are, however, demographic <coughs> elements uh, and strong groups within the population now who have no family or other relation to, to that part of, of German history. I'm particularly thinking uh, of people who recently came to the country uh, of Turkish or other origin, and uh, that is a very interesting demographic development in Germany right now in terms of their correlation and dealing with, with this part of the history of the country within which they live. You know, Catherine, um, he makes a really interesting point and one that I've heard or at least read about again and again, and I think I may have read about it in one of your articles too, uh, although with a different ethnicity cited, cited but this notion that essentially non-Teutonic immigrants, you know, that uh, Turks uh, and, and other groups who've come there, they don't have the baggage or the burden of the past, uh, they, they know what patriotism feels like in general, and they consider some themselves German, and they exhibit it. Was it one of your articles that I read about a Lebanese man who was trying to ha uh, hang out the flag? And, yes, this and, happened um, during the last European championship in um, so it, it was in Berlin, and it was a Lebanese store owner in Berlin who um, had a huge German flag outside his store, and it was stolen, and he kept putting up new flags, and he said that they were stolen multiple times. And um, he filed a police report, and he, you know, the police said, well, this must be you know, activists who are opposed to German nationalism, and they're opposed to the World Cup and all of these international tournaments. Um, well, I think we have joining. Oh, did you have something you wanted to say, Rand? I, I saw a body language. There. Well, well, just that I, I lived in Germany for six years, but twenty years ago. Um, and if you are an American who tends to be skeptical or, or, or wary of national pride in general, including one's own American uh, enthusiasms, it was often um, it was startling and in some ways encouraging for for me to see how far toward the direction of correction and even suppression of these instincts Germany had gone. I think it was, and, and Jürgen will be able to correct me on this, I think it was Konrad Adenauer, the, the chancellor, or another post-war German chancellor, who when asked, do you love your country, said, I love my dog, I love my wife. There is almost this sense in which it was verboten for Germans to say outright, I love my country. Now, there are all sorts of interesting themes that tie into that. If can, can you make an idea? Can you forbid an idea and by doing that, eradicate it? That will relate us to the Mein Kampf discussion. But just for someone who left Germany 20 years ago, I'm, I'm, you know, I read in the New York Times, fans drape themselves in the black, red, and gold of the German flag. And I still think, I love my dog. I love my wife. Mm -hmm. So I'm very interested in being updated on the extent to which uh, that formerly verboten sentiment really now has been enthusiastically embraced. Well, I think uh, what, what we need to be aware of here is that the symbols that we now associate with, with expressions of German national pride, particularly the flag, are not anti-democratic symbols. They have a tradition that's deeply rooted in German liberalism, and they were not used during the period of the Third Reich or during the, the, the imperial era, the Kaiserreich. So uh, the, the verboten, if you like, aspect 
really pertains to the early post-war, uh, post-World War II era, and really with a with an, with a, the, the notion in the back of of politicians' mind and Adenauer particularly, that there are certain aspects of of German history and traditions that one should be very very careful to embrace. And that skepticism, I think, has filtered through, even in, if applied to these symbols that have a very benign history. Um, I think we're we are also ready to talk to Peter Ross Range. We're having a little technical problem at first. Uh, he's a journalist and author who's been involved for decades with Germany. Uh, you may have read the um, op-ed piece he did in the New York Times last week about the republication of Mein Kampf. We'll come to that in just a second. Uh, he joins us from the NPR studios in Washington, D.C. So, Peter, I don't know how much of this conversation, perhaps all of it, you've been able to hear so far. Um, but, but you know, if, if we're talking about a kind of change in the air, you know, we talked about some different possible uh, um, causes of it, including just the, even the influx of, of, of immigrants who are who now identify as Germans, but they're, they, they don't have the baggage of the past. Uh, another thing that I've read about over and over again is, is Berlin's hosting of the World Cup in 2006 that just seemed to be some kind of psychological tipping point uh, for the country. But I'd be interested in your take on this. First of all, do you agree and acknowledge that there, there maybe is a little attitudinal or maybe even a massive attitudinal change in the wind? And if so, to what, what do you attribute it? I don't think it's uh, massive. Uh, I think it's incremental. We've actually seen most of this language before. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, in Der Spiegel today, it talks about an, an neue Leichtigkeit, a new light feeling. Uh, they went through this with the last uh, world championships and even the European championships two years ago. And even before that, uh, almost 20 years ago, when the Reichstag was wrapped by Christo and turned into an object of art, a strange object of art, it became a national celebration and was uh, described as a, a, the new light, nice new lightness in Germany. Uh, so, but I do think it's incremental. But as always with Germany, it is conditional. If you look at the cover of Der Spiegel this week, it, it's uh, a picture of people draped in the flag, indeed. And you may have discussed this. I, I missed the first 10 or so minutes of the conversation. Um, and the cover line is, we are once again who? Uh, <laughs> not we are once again somebody. And uh, it, uh, it, you know, it shows Germany as a, a land which uh, can be trusted and are good guys, but who are still seeking their place in the world. So the ambivalence continues. That's my impression. Yeah, actually, I did cite that at the beginning, although I used a different translation. It was we're back, but as what? Um, Very good uh, from 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 Der Spiegel. So, um, as Peter, while we while we're while we're on this subject, maybe there is, is a way that we can segue a little bit here. Actually, before we do that, I'm going to go uh, over to Catherine because I think we have her for a finite amount of time. So, one of the things that you wrote about a year ago, Catherine, uh, during the women's soccer championships, is the whole question also of. Uh, uh, of racism. And so we look all across Europe and there are these xenophobic uh, nativist movements that, that really for you know well over a decade now have been uh, rising up in, in all kinds of countries. And even in casual conversation, if you're in a country like France right now, you're, you're going to hear uh, some pretty stinging words uh, about, uh, about immigrants, about immigration, uh, about people from different cultures. Um, and uh, this is one of the things that, that you sort of wrote about is how Germany... Uh, being probably hypersensitive to this, more sensitive than most countries would be, um, sort of struggled with this and, and tries to try to factor for this. Uh, once again, I mean, in soccer games, we know people shout all kinds of things. People from all kinds of countries shout all kinds of things. So uh, tell us a little bit more about this and about the groups that you've talked to about this. 
Well, I talked to a few different groups that uh, try to fight racism and discrimination, also homophobia and sexism in soccer, also you know, in amateur clubs all across Germany. And um, they, they talked about this problem. They talked about the problems of um, you know, fans, hooligans in stadiums who would say things that are racist. And uh, they said that the problem you know, got a lot better when there were video cameras in, in stadiums. So with surveillance, it kind of got better. Um, but it's still an issue, and it's still something that I, the German Soccer Association is really sensitive to. Um, but I have to say that I think that you know the German Soccer Association also does, you know, really tries to market how multicultural this German national soccer team is. Um, there are I don't want to say anything wrong, but I believe that there are six uh, players in the German national soccer team whose families you know emigrated to Germany at some point um, in recent decades. And I think that this is actually a point of pride for, for a lot of German soccer fans. They think it's really great that this uh, team is multicultural and represents a side of Germany that um, you don't see represented all the time. Yeah, did you have well, just German multiculturalism, that, that's, that is a fascinating subject on its own. And the German Auseinandersetzung, the engagement with, with cultural identity, is, is completely fascinating. Twelve percent of the German population, I think, something like that, is, is Turkish. And, and, and it's now second and third generation Turkish Germans who, have, who are highly assimilated, and they're beginning to sort of filter into political leadership positions, certainly pop cultural positions. We see one on the German national team. Now, I remember 20 years ago when I was there, I used to play chess with a bunch of old men, and we would speak German. Uh, they, were, they had all been soldiers in World War II, and they would complain to me freely. I, I became their friend. They complained to me freely about the Auslander, the Auslander, the, the, the foreigners. And I said to them one day... Uh, you know, guys, ich bin Ausländer. I, I am an Ausländer. And I, I'm a foreigner. And they said, oh, not you, not you, meaning that I was not a Turk. And there was, in the minds of Germans, a very big wall. doesn't matter whether you were born in Germany, whether you spoke German. You weren't, if you were Turkish, you weren't really German. And this was an insurmountable obstacle in many Germans. So I'm interested to know, 20 years along, is there an idea of German cultural identity that will include you know, all multicultural people. Jürgen, do you want to take that one? Yeah, well, I, I just want to pick up on what Peter and, and Catherine just said uh, in regard to multiculturalism, uh, German style. I would be a little bit more cautious here. I mean, obviously, we are dealing with something that is not at all a cross-section of, of German society when we point to the, to the German national soccer team, nor is it indicative for the rest of the country if we always look at Berlin. Now, Berlin is, is the metropolis. This is a, a vibrant uh, city. Uh, tourists love the, love it, but there is a large chunk of, of Germany that's not uh, metropolitan. And so there are things that are probably more geared towards the past, and a past that, at Peter, as Peter indicated, is, is, is still pretty much infested with, with stereotypes uh, against foreigners of a certain kind. Uh, so there is a lot that's still under the carpet, and that, of course, these these uh, events like the winning the the championship, having these very nice events, it looks good on television, easily can 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 uh, push into the background, and we are not really aware of the, if you like, the soft underbelly of of, of German racism that's that's still there. Uh, I I think, and I've I've read now. I'm not an expert on this, but I trust the 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 experts who do the research on that. That anti-Semitism uh, in Germany, though not 
as developed as in other European countries is still significant. The degree of militancy, uh, especially among the, the uh, radical right, uh, is significant, and, and there might be even no-go areas, particularly in the former GDR, so in the eastern part of Germany, where people with a certain skin color might have a, a big problem to go to. Um, this is a nice segue. Nice is probably not the right word uh, to to Peter Ross Range and, and his uh, op-ed piece about Mein Kampf. So let's start with the fact, uh, Peter, that to some degree the republication of Mein Kampf is an accident of copyright law. It is uh, the uh, Bavaria has controlled the copyright. It expires in 2015. There's going to be therefore publication of Mein Kampf. Is it just an accident of, uh, accident of copyright, or is it? Are there other things coming together to produce this moment? Uh, the uh, thing that might have pushed it to the forefront anyway is the impulse of the scholarly community to finally have a go at this book in the same way they've done with a lot of other uh, uh, original stuff by Hitler, his speeches and so forth. We, uh, this book has never been taken apart completely, almost sentence by sentence, uh, by uh, historians uh, who can study it and put it all of its uh, various uh, parts into historical context. Um, but in any case, yeah, there is that historical accident that after 70 years the copyright expires. It was a, So it's a timely and I think a, a very good accident. Uh, in fact, it's way overdue, and I uh, spoke with various folks in the research for that piece, uh, including many Jewish people uh, whom I spoke with in Germany who think it's overdue as well, uh, that this it's really a uh, uh, mistake to keep this under wraps and treat it as some sort of a taboo subject. Jürgen, when Peter's uh, op-ed ran in the New York Times, uh, the, uh, a wave of letters to the editor followed, and there were basically two kinds of responses, especially from American Jews. One was, let's have the conversation, just as Peter was just saying. And the other one was, no, let's never privilege this material with any hint of legitimacy. Right. How, how do you parse that question? How do you react to that? Well, I, I see both, both sides and, and the validity of both arguments. Uh, perhaps again, there might be a, it might be difficult to to assess the problem here from an American perspective, where freedom of speech is so prominent. Um, as Peter indicated, it's a copyright issue. I I would throw in another aspect here that is codified in the in the German law, and that is an article that uh, where you it's it's uh, it's forbidden to incite uh, hatred. Uh, Volksverhetzung is the German term. Now, that is an, an article on the German books that, that would sound strange uh, and look strange to, to Americans who are so used to, to freedom of speech. However, there is a good reason to keep, in my view, to keep that, that article on the books, and that's something that, that is relevant to the republication of Mein Kampf. In fact, the politicians who had sat together some weeks ago to, to uh, talk about and discuss whether the the book should be republished, this is what they looked at. Does this book entice racial hatred? Now, copyright, I think, is, is pretty much a moot point, given the fact that the book is out there in, in various iterations, in many translations all across the world. But just looking at the domestic situation in Germany, is that something that falls under that, that article on, in, the, in the German legal penal code? which is enticement of, of, of hatred. And I think there's something to be said for that. I'm absolutely with Peter when it comes to, to having a critical and fully annotated edition out there. It's in the works. We'll hopefully see it uh, soon. And that's, I think, what needs to happen, which is, which is debunk these myths about uh, the book as they are, and they are, that are still uh, out there. 
I think it's hard for Americans to imagine the extent to which post-war Germany succeeded in taking certain ideas and symbols and objects entirely off the shelf for public conversation and consumption. One time I was in a bookstore in Mainz where I lived, and I was browsing through. They had some old it was an antiquarian store, and they had old railway uh, timetables in booklet form that went back to the Reichsbahn uh, before the war. And every place that, that the little uh, swastika, Hackenkreuz, um, appeared, someone had gone through and actually placed stickers, manually put stickers over these symbols. And you had to imagine you know, sort of the manpower that, that, goes, that went into that effort, even on the smallest level. Now, what happens, among other things, from an American point of view, when and I now go back to the notion of taboo and its function and whether it works or doesn't work, you, you would encounter, even among educated Germans, at least I would, these strange lacuna, these gaps <laughs> in knowledge, so that I would just mention conversationally, oh, Triumph des Willens, Triumph of the Will, the film by Lenny Riefenstahl. And my friends, who were university-educated people, okay, not scholars in the field, but still, they would look at me blankly, who? Um, Lenny Riefenstahl, well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure it probably wasn't legal to show triumph of the will. And so there was this whole area that remained reserved only for accredited scholars, where scholars could and, and did have recourse to these things, but the general population was was eliminated from the conversation. And it's very interesting to speculate whether that's been a, a good and necessary thing or not. Um, uh, Catherine Stupp, uh, you're listening to all this. Uh, you're in Berlin right now. Is this debate happening at a visible level, uh, uh, the uh, debate about Mein Kampf or reconsideration of any of these kinds uh, of symbols or the kind of content that Rand Cooper was just talking about? Well, uh, the debate has certainly been going on in German media over the last few months. Um, I don't think it's so much a debate about symbols. I think it's really about the issue that this could come back into print in Germany and, you know, the issue with copyright and the German state and what will happen. Um, I have not really seen it outside of, you know, German media, German newspapers really emerging into the mainstream conversation right now. Um, But I do think that this is something that a majority of Germans would be disturbed by, especially Germans maybe who grew up in the post-war era in the 1950s and 60s. I think if they walked into a bookstore and saw Mein Kampf for sale, that they would be upset by that, that they would think that this this should be illegal in Germany. All right. That's, if I may, uh, what's so good about this uh, annotated edition that the Institute for Contemporary History in Munich is producing, uh, if and when they walk into the bookstore and they see an unannotated copy of Mein Kampf, which is possible, anybody can publish it uh, in about uh, 18 months, uh, they will also see this other book, this big, heavy academic book, which uh, annotates and commentates and dissects everything. So it will take the wind out of the sails of a possible um, uh, in, incitement-style uh, pulp edition of Mein Kampf, in my opinion. So it'll at least be there on a side-by-side basis. Yeah, if if, if you believe that kind of framing uh, actually works. Uh, Well, we'll talk some more about this. I want to talk also in the next segment about how the rest of the world sees Germany at a time like this. Uh, We're going to thank Catherine Stupp very much for joining us. We'll be back with more of Peter and Jürgen and Rand after this.
All right, we're back. Uh, you're uh, tuning in, if you're just tuning in, to a program about Germany and about how Germany, uh, how comfortable Germany is celebrating itself uh, and how comfortable the rest of the world is in uh, Germany celebrating itself uh, at a time uh, when a lot of things are coming together. I mean, this really is uh, a, a moment uh, where so many things are coming together, uh, ranging from German economic superiority uh, to uh, to the republication of Mein Kampf, to the winning of the World Cup. To there, there's uh, a lot of things flowing together. And, and another one of the things that's happening, uh, I would I should say. Well, before I make that point, let me uh, reintroduce everybody. Rand Cooper, an author, essayist, freelance writer, regular uh, guest on our show, former resident of Germany. Peter Ross Range is a journalist and author who has been involved for decades with Germany. Uh, he's joining us from the NPR studios studios in Washington D.C. And Jürgen Mateus is the director of Applied Research Scholars. I have to take a second breath here at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies. So, um, Rand, you know, uh, at the the uh, in the in the first segment, you told uh, the story about the men that you played chess with, uh, men uh, in this city in Germany on the Rhine where you were uh, uh, living, and and men who who met, remembered uh, World War II very vividly and very personally. Um, now, uh, I read an essay of yours about what happened when you came back years later. So pick up the story there. Well, uh, this is 20 and a little more years ago that I became friendly with this men. They were then all retired. They all had been soldiers in World War II, and they were old enough to have been boys, uh, some of them teenagers, when the synagogue in Mainz was burned down. It was about one block from where we uh, played chess. And after I became friendly enough with them to ask these kinds of things, I asked them a lot about their experiences back then. They were quite eager to talk with me, and they said that they had never spoken about these things with outsiders and actually hardly at all among themselves. The, around that time, Helmut Kohl and the chancellor uh, introduced an interesting concept called die Gnade des späten Geburts, the, the mercy of the late birth, by which he indicated a line that demarcated anyone who was born after say, 1940, and therefore couldn't possibly have been directly complicit in the war. Um, and that was a way of, of sort of dividing the generation, the wartime generation, from the post-war. Well, when I went back 10 years later and went back to that park, you know, none of those guys were there. They were all dead. And if you do the math now, anyone who was an adult at the beginning of World War II is now pushing 100 years old. So we're at a very interesting moment, and it's, it's when the moment when individual testimony to World War II is, is disappearing, and it's yielding to, you know, as Jürgen knows, to a different kind of testimony, and that's the collective narrative of history. And, and so it's, like, it's almost like there's a second gnada, a second mercy, and that's the mercy that happens when, uh, when no one who was there is, is here anymore. And that, it's sort of, I'm, I'm interested in knowing how that changes things, because that's really the moment Germany's at now. Well, you know, I, I, it may change things in Germany in a different way than it changes things in the outside world. And, and Jürgen Mateos, I, I wonder how much the bright line that he's describing means. And let me tell you uh, my one quick story to contribute to this, which was that last week I was in the presence of a seven-year-old American boy who was watching the World Cup uh, with avid interest. And his uh, father is Jewish, his mother is not. Uh, and when Germany was playing, I think in the semifinals, maybe, maybe the quarterfinals, um, his mother said to him, we don't root for Germany. And, uh, and he said, why not? And he, his mother said, because they killed the Jews. Uh, this was the first time he'd ever heard about this, and he was uh, pretty shocked by it. Uh, and, and obviously that's a very sort of blunt instrument way to talk about something like this. But when I saw the look on this little boy's face, uh, I thought, well— 
maybe it's maybe it's less meaningful, you know, the mercy of the late birth, because these stories just get told over and over, sometimes, as I say, in very blunt form. Right. I, I would agree. And I think there's also the phenomenon that, that each generation, and increasingly so perhaps, uh, finds and reinvents this, this chapter in history over and over again. So the way we, we approach the topic today is different from the way it was approached 20 or 30 years ago in this country or in, or in Germany. And I think this will change uh, with future generations. And I think what, what Rand pointed out in terms of generational transformation has been really crucial for, for whatever uh, we say by way of, of uh, we see uh, by way of t- positive developments in Germany uh, since, uh, say, 1960-70, when the, the old folks were not only still around, but were still dominating many of the, of the fields of profession and were also in the bureaucracies, uh, and a huge carryover from, from Nazi-era officials into uh, post-war, uh, particularly West German history. Uh, and that was a legacy that took a long time to get rid of, and there are still kind of vestiges left of that of that legacy. Generally, however, I think it's it's quite striking every time I I hear American or other diplomats um, or the media talking about Germany and it's dealing with its its obviously most problematic past uh, by way of of the Nazi era. There's always a sense of of success that Germany has been extremely successful in dealing with that. Now. I think this is this is a very relative statement. If you if you compare the, the German attitude towards uh, this this history with the Japanese regarding their own crimes, it is probably uh, very positive. But there are many blind spots that that we still have to to look at in greater detail in terms of of what was done and what was not done after 1945 uh, in dealing with with the Nazi past. You know, I I yeah, go ahead, Peter. Yeah, say I, I agree wholeheartedly. I like what uh, Jürgen said there about uh, each generation is sort of reinventing or uh, re wrestling with the past in a new way. I'm most impressed by what the younger generation of historians is doing today. A perfect example is this group that's working on the Mein Kampf edition at this extraordinary institute in Munich, which has had a, a significant role in. Uh, modernizing and changing the way German, the newer ger- generations are dealing with their past in a, in a franker way and, ma- and maintaining curiosity even at a time when they could begin to ignore it. Obviously, most of this is happening among the educated elites, but that's their job after all. Uh, and I, I think it's a very encouraging development. I think it's going to go on for a long time. I think the shadow of this past, you know, it's been said that this would this would affect and uh, uh, and and hang over Germany for a hundred years. I think it may be longer. It's been sixty nine years already. Um, uh, but at the same time, I'm one of those who's most impressed by Germany's dealing with it, not only in comparison to Japan, uh, but with the way they're continuing to deal with it and the way younger scholars are approaching the topic. Oh, by the way, I haven't put out this uh, the phone number yet, but we are live here in the afternoon if anybody wants to call in about what we're saying. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Rand, I see you. I, I just want to second uh, what both Peter and Jürgen have said, and that is that I always was impressed and still very much am by the effort that Germany has made to come to terms with this great wound in its in its past. And that ranges from 
everything from reparations that were paid out and continue to be paid out um, well, far more extensively than most Americans realize at all. You know, that, that, that um, descendants of, of German Jews are still getting money from, uh, from the German government, but also the efforts at public memorialization, the, the way in which when you, when you tour Berlin, perhaps most of all, uh, you find again and again that you are, you are engaged by spots of history that have been very effectively and educationally memorialized. I mean, it's, it's really kind of mind-bending for an American to, to see that. Jürgen, would you agree with that, with the memorialization part of that statement? I, I would. However, I would want to qualify what, what Ranch has said. I mean, many of these, of these initiatives that deal with, with the Nazi past are, have come up as a, as a result of grassroots initiatives. The most prominent feature, perhaps, are the, the so-called Stolpersteine, stumbling stones. If, if anyone of, of your, your audience has, has been to Germany and been to a major city, chances are they have come across these these brass stones uh, in, on the, the walkways in front of houses indicating where there were victims of Nazi persecution, not only Jews but also other groups. And that is an initiative that came up by an artist, has been embraced by many people in many cities, and is really kind of low-key grassroots. When it comes uh, I think to, that's a wonderful thing, though, Jürgen. I mean, of that's course, <laughs> absolutely. However, what I want to, what I want to kind of uh, uh, compare that with is a problem that exists more on the national level. Now, German politicians, I think, over time have adapted, uh, adopted a very elegant way of dealing with the topic and a very successful, uh, adopted a very successful strategy. However, there is no such thing as a, a Holocaust museum like you have in this country where I happen to work in, in Germany. That's quite surprising phenomenon. You have, you have multiple memorial sites. They all do a wonderful job and have multiple initiatives. However, there is no concentrated effort to sustain the infrastructure of research on the Holocaust. The U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, and particularly the center that I work in, we are trying to cooperate with German scholars uh, to, to really build up that infrastructure to, to have people in academia who make sure that the topic is dealt with in the future. In the past 10 years, we had a, we had a, a rather shocking number of of people, uh, established professors who have retired, which is not surprising, of course, because it's a general flow of things. However, that leaves a, 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 a glaring gap that uh, is not about to be filled anytime soon. I'm very happy that in, in Munich, uh, in conjunction with the Institute for Contemporary History, there is now a Center for Holocaust Studies that has just come up uh, in August last year. Other than that, there is very little on that academic level, and I think if you do anything in regard to, to uh, educational efforts, uh, as Catherine mentioned, in relation to the, to the, the changing demographic, to attract uh, other, demo, uh, other groups of a non-German background to that, to that topic, you need scholarship first and foremost, and the rest needs to be built on that. If, if the infrastructure is not there, then there will be a problem in the future. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, I've got one last area that I really want to get into uh, with all three of our guests. We've also got um, a board full of phone calls. We'll try to get to as many of those as we possibly can.
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Allison Ehrenreich and Brittany Hill. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. For articles, show pages, and videos, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, the strange world of competitive eating. And now, back to Colin. Yes, back to our show about Germany. Uh, we have a finite amount of time and a lot of phone calls and a lot of things that I want to go over with our guests. It's all going to have to be condensed. But um, I'm going to start with uh, uh, with Peter Ross with Peter Range. Ross Range. You know, I'm actually getting, know, I'm actually myself, getting myself fed, fed, back, fed back through my through headphones, my headphones right? right now. So, right now. so, so we can sort of deal with that before, before I absolutely, absolutely lose my mind. My mind. Um, um, while we're doing that, my, our number, 860-275-7266. There we go. Uh, it stopped. All right, so Peter Ross Range, uh, I, I'm going to read you a quote by a former European commissioner uh, for Germany, Gunther Verheugen. And it sounds like he's talking about soccer, but he's actually talking about uh, German economic policy and, and Eurozone uh, policy. He says, I can only advise German politicians to take a close look at the psychology of this game and never forget that Germany will always be viewed and assessed differently than any other European country. The last two or three years have shown that in every place Germany has pushed through unpopular measures, supposedly on its own, it has provoked the same reactions, swastikas and images of Hitler. We shouldn't forget that. We are judged differently, and so we should behave differently. So so this is, you know, uh, Rand during the break used the phrase, the whole world is always watching. Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about this, the, the German self-consciousness about how the rest of the world views them, even in 2014, vis-a-vis -vis superiority? And I'm sensing maybe Peter's not there. So, so uh, Jürgen, maybe you can, you can uh, start right. out with well, that one. I must say I very much sympathize with, with the statement from, from Günther Verheugen that you, that you just read. He, uh, by the way, he started with the Free Democratic Party, which is kind of the liberal uh, party in Germany, though not comparable to um, the American spectrum, and he ended up with the Social Democrats. Um, I think uh, he's also of, a, of the older generation. I think he's absolutely right that even if other countries are not thinking along these lines of, of having the, the Nazi era in the back of their minds, it is a good thing for Germans and particularly for German decision makers, be they politicians, be they businessmen, to keep that in the back of their minds and to be aware of that piece of German history and what it means in terms of responsibility. We're not talking about guilt, and I think that's a, an aspect that is not really in, uh, uh, relevant uh, among the German population, but responsibility and how that responsibility can be met uh, within society and, of course, vis-a-vis -vis other countries. And Jürgen, doesn't that put them in an odd kind of double bind, though? On the one hand, because of what they've become economically, they really are expected to lead uh, and to, to, to lead productively the European Union in certain ways. And yet one senses this tremendous discomfort with leadership. I, I don't know what the right answer would be. Well, I'm not sure there is one. I mean, obviously, even the very term lead and leadership, you have the leader and we had that leader and we know what happened after that. So the term... Uh, in itself is, is already indicative of the problem in, in the German dealing with it, because obviously no one wants a recurrence uh, of, of that, that past, um, and, and uh, most obviously not the countries uh, yes. in Europe. 
Um, so, Peter, I, I sense that we have you back. So I don't, uh, you probably didn't get, me, get to hear me read the Gunter uh, Verheugen quote, but this, this sense anyway that any time Germany asserts itself, particularly economically now in the Eurozone, that, that if it asserts itself too much, there's an immediate backlash. At least Germans seem to have a self-consciousness about but the idea that there'll be a backlash, that they'll be seen once again as aggressors. Exactly. And that was one of the interpretations of the uh, World Cup championship that I read this morning in the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung, for example. Uh, the theme that kept coming up in this article was that you don't need to be afraid of us. And the author was able to reach back to all the three previous uh, German World Cup victories and find that uh, people like the presidents uh, of the country, uh, all the way back to 1954, had s- tried to send exactly the same message on the basis of this uh, this soccer victory, uh, so that uh, German strength in sports is fine, but it's not going to translate into any of that bad stuff that you worry about. And this is why I say that the shadow of the past will hang over Germany for more than 100 years. I mean, it will keep coming back. One of the great ironies, obviously, is that Germany is one of the strongest countries in the world in so many ways. Uh, now again in soccer, uh, but of course economically and potentially in other ways. And and Germans have a hard time figuring out how to wear that mantle, frankly. Uh, and that's why you see so much ambivalence in the interpretation of, of the World Cup victory, in my opinion. Rand, I, I even read accounts of uh, Germans watching uh, the the semifinal game and wishing that their team had won 3-1 to one over Brazil instead of 7-1. to one. There's a sense that when you, you push the pedal too hard about anything, you're, you're, you're going to hit tripwires. Yes, and that's an interesting combination, again, of this idea of sort of being scrutinized and judged. But, but also um, certain, I don't know, new impulses or reflexes, and by new I mean after World War II, that have been in effect built into the German character in order to uh, balance out or atone for perhaps uh, what was there before. The sense that, oh, perhaps we should have won 3 nothing instead of 7 to nothing or 7 to 1 reflects the sense that it's not good to erniedrigen, to, it's not good to humiliate someone. And, and humiliation based in power could be said to have been sort of the dominant tone of, 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 of a fascist, of the fascist government. So, uh, you know, there, there's this way that scrutiny and being scrutinized and being judged is so built in to, to the German sense of self for so many decades now. Um, and, and, and Peter says it might last for another 100 years. That, that seems like a long time. All right. Uh, well, I, I'd like to agree with Rand. I'm going to coin a phrase here, die Gnade des späten Tors, the mercy <laughs> of a late goal. The <laughs> fact that uh, I even wrote this in an email to a friend. I said, well, I think it was just the right, the strongest team won, but thank God they won by only one goal uh, instead of by seven, uh, and that it was a good goal, not a cheapie. Uh, so um, uh, you wouldn't say that about anybody else. But knowing what um, a, an overwhelming victory by Germany, how it could be interpreted in the world, uh, you, you, you have to see that as a good outcome. Let me grab a, a call or two. We've got uh, we have a limited. Oh boy, we have a really limited amount of time. Hi, Chris. Uh, I'm hoping you can make it relatively succinct. I'm struck, Colin, uh, by the parallels with some of the events that are going on in Japan, with Abe deciding to give the military there a little bit more uh, flexibility on foreign policy. And I just wonder if this is coincidence or if this uh, goes back to the conversation you were having about uh, age and the passing of the wartime generation. 
You know, I think I might let that question just hang in the air because I think it's really hard to um, analogize. Uh, Japanese culture is really so, so different from German culture. Let me grab one more quick call from Linda in West Hartford. Hi, Linda. I uh, know it won't be from Linda. And actually, but we have one more call here from Anka, who actually I believe is a professor at uh, at University of Connecticut. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Um, I wanted to come back to uh, the comments you started with when the show began, the generational issue. And I wanted to point out and maybe have um, your uh, visitors comment on uh, how younger generations, both uh, inside and outside Germany, uh, perceive themselves and perceive, uh, perceive Germany, because there seems to be a much greater flux of identity, whether young Germans look at themselves as Europeans or as being affiliated with their regional identity, and Americans who look to Germany as inspiring both for jobs in a global scale, um, for environmental issues, and other things that obviously fall into all of the discussions that um, uh, sort of make Germany as a country and a global player today. Jürgen, you want to take a stab at that one? It's We've only got about 45 seconds left, but is there are there 18-year-old, 20-year-old, 22-year-old Germans now who are saying, you know, all of that really just isn't me, it isn't my problem, I just w- really wasn't born into this world, absolutely, let it go. I, absolutely, I think you get the whole range of reactions here, the, the sensitive, the, perhaps the oversensitive and the, the completely ignorant, if you like, or non-caring. And I think that's probably not a, not a bad thing. There is a lot, thing going, a lot of things going on, a lot of, of flux in, in the shaping of national identity. And I think it's, it might be healthy compared to the, to the absolute certainty that was so prevalent during the Nazi era, where they thought, Germans at the time, that they had figured it out, they knew who they were and where to go to. And that just created the problem. All right, we're going to have to say goodbye to everybody and uh, a profound thank you to everybody, especially, well, not especially everybody. Uh, Jurgen Mateos is the Director of Applied Research Scholars, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies, Peter Ross Range, a journalist and author most recently seen on the op-ed page of the New York Times writing about the republication of Mein Kampf, and Rand Cooper, our go-to guy about so many things, author, essayist, and freelance writer, former resident of Germany. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Ende in Sicht. <Sie>